Hello and welcome to Co-Recursive, the stories behind the code. I'm Adam Gordon-Bell, the host. Welcome to the year-end episode. Today is all bonus questions. Oftentimes, I have questions I want to ask guests, but they don't quite fit the overall theme of the episode. So today, we're going to do a whole episode of those extra questions. I have questions for Brian Kernahan, the creator of Auk, among many other things. I have questions for Sean Allen, who works at Microsoft Research, and a couple of other people. We're going to start with Jim Blandy. Jim Blandy was the guest on episode 54. Uh, One thing you might not know about Jim is he's been working on open source software for his entire career. I think that's pretty cool. It means that all the code that he's written is out there somewhere in the world. You know, it's, it's visible. It's not locked up in proprietary software. It's kind of like Jim's personal career portfolio. So I asked Jim what happened, and it, it turned out he started working on the Emacs project as soon as he finished university. The story behind it is super interesting. So, so basically, what happened is I had been working for Project GNU on Emacs as the Emacs maintainer for several years, and Richard Stallman was my boss, and I was working remotely from Ohio. And, and Stallman had been really very helpful to me, he, you know, I had some difficulties learning to work remotely. I was just out of college and he, he really, in his own difficult way, uh, he was actually very supportive and, and helped me, helped me get, get into the, get into the pattern. So, but after I'd done that for two years, uh, I, I quit and it was funny. I just finished a project sort of looking, survey, doing a survey of the copyrights on all of the Emacs Lisp modules that are distributed with Emacs and making sure that everything was, was on, on the up and up. And so I called him up one night and said, okay, Richard, I finished the copyright survey. And he says, oh, good. And I said, and I'm, I'm going to quit. And he <laughs> said, oh, no. And then he hangs up the phone on me. <laughs> and that was, that was our last conversation as an employee. <laughs> Jim quit the Emacs job so that he could do a bit of world traveling. But when he got back, he had to find a new job. My friend Carl Fogel had gotten a job working at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, on a gene editing mode for Emacs. And this is in Emacs, you visit a file that's full of genetic data. And Emacs will bring it up and it'll apply colors to it. And you can like select, you know, rectangles and stuff like that. And so basically this, the lab that my friend was working for, their big triumph was that they were able to build trees that had like hundreds of organisms in them, right? And like nobody else had ever been able, people had said, oh yeah, that, that, that technique is too difficult. You'd never do it. Basically, they took every kind of organism you could find. And it turns out that since all life, uh, all cellular life uses you know, it synthesizes proteins from their genes, right? You have a genetic sequence describes a protein. You've got to you've got to make the protein. That's done by uh, an enzyme called a ribosome, and everybody's got ribosomes. Bacteria have ribosomes. Humans have ribosomes. Oak trees have ribosomes. You know, weird things that you find living in hot springs and at the bottom of the ocean next to volcanic vents. Everybody's got ribosomes, and so if you use the ribosome sequence as your point of comparison, you can actually compare all of life any kind of life, all of, you know, anywhere you find it, everybody's got ribosomes, um, except like viruses. Uh, viruses use somebody else's ribosomes. <laughs> um, so, um, but they are doing the same kind of analysis on, on COVID strains, actually. When they talk about the, the European strain and the, the Asian strain, that's actually, or, you know, they, they talked about how they figured out how everybody in the U.S. got infected from somebody in, in uh, New York or from people from New York. That was using the same kind of analysis. It's differential analysis of the sequences. So, yeah, and and so it's, so basically, what they did 
their, their output was, they put it on a t-shirt. It was such a, it was this great thing. It was this a circular plot of basically every kind of life that there was, right? And it really showed the, the literal distances between these different kinds of organisms. And it was really funny because it had this whole big, you know, it was like a hundred of hundred organisms are arranged around the, the circumference of this circle with the common ancestor at the center. And then things branch mm -hmm. out from the center out towards the edge of the circle. And basically almost all of these organisms were bacteria or single celled organisms. And then off in one little corner of the circle, there was human beings, corn, oak trees, and yeast. They're all, they're all so close. They're so similar. You know, if you see them walking down the street, you can't tell the difference between one and the other. They're basically, you know, all the same, right? Human beings, corn, oak trees, and yeast, identical. No <laughs> distinction between them at all. So, so it's really, the project really gave you a sense of perspective. It's like, you know, it's not really about us. We like us and we should take good care of us, but it's not about us. It's not about us. Interesting thought. I'm not really sure what the takeaways are from Jim's story. But now I know there really is an Emacs mode for everything, including gene editing. In episode 58, I interviewed Brian Kernahan, who coined the term Unix and is the K in KNR, the, the famous C book. In the interview, we focused a lot on how Unix was created in the early days at Bell Labs. But in this clip, I asked him about the success of Unix. Why did it end up becoming so popular? Some of it is right place at the right time. Um, Unix came along at a time when computers started to become affordable, uh, not for individuals yet, but for smallish groups. So if you and half a dozen people like you working at a company, let's say, or maybe a handful of people at a university department or something, they could afford a computer. We talked earlier about 50,000 bucks. So call it something like that. That's not pocket change for either of us individually, but if we get a, a small group of us together, we can actually do that. And so the hardware itself was feasible, manageable for smallish groups. Um, and small groups have more control over their destiny than perhaps a you know, giant group. And so in that sense, useful. And then the other thing is that the service that Unix provided, the computing environment it provided at the time was just so much better than what you would get from the uh, operating systems and software provided by computer manufacturers, because that was at a time when manufacturers like IBM or DAC or HP or whatever made their own operating systems. That that was part of the service. They built a computer, but they also provided an operating system and the operating system probably was even free as part of the purchase price. I don't know. And those operating systems tended to be, roughly speaking, pretty awful. They weren't very yeah. nice to use. Um, and you could imagine why, because it wasn't the fundamental focus of the company that was making the computer. The, com you know, the focus was the hardware and the software was just something that you had to provide. Uh, and so Unix provided quite a decent alternative to that. In fact, a very much more pleasant alternative for lots of people. And so uh, as a result, people found Unix kind of appealing and they could get things done. Um, and so there was this kind of a wave of people following Unix on to more and more powerful machines. So the PB11 was kind of you know, powerful for its time, but limited. Uh, but then the next generation, uh, the VAX, which went from a 16-bit architecture to a 32-bit architecture, and that opened up a lot more possibilities. And so that was the dominant machine for a long time. I think another thing that worked was the portability of operating system and supporting 
code that was written in high-level language so that it meant that you could write something once and it would run on lots of different things. And so Unix, just as a software system, made it possible for smallish companies like Sun Microsystems in particular to design hardware. And then they didn't have to write software. They could just use Unix. And so that meant that you had hardware companies like Sun and Apollo and scattered others who were making workstation type computers and using Unix as the standard operating system. And so roughly speaking, you didn't have to do anything. If you had a bright idea for a new hardware system, you could get it off the ground, provide Unix. You might have to write some kind of compiler, but that was fundamentally it and you were up and running. And so all of these things helped spread the system. Uh, and obviously this is combined, you know, the system itself, but combined with the hardware getting better, our understanding mm -hmm. of software getting better, our ability to, to port things from one place to another getting better. And so all of these things compound, if you like, to make it easy uh, for this particular system to spread. And the other, th and other thing that happened probably in the, call it the 80s, was the development of networking, in particular the internet which although the mm -hmm. internet wasn't you know, widespread or commercial or anything, it was absolutely there for uh, universities and industrial research operations like Bell Labs, and IBM, and Xerox Park, and so on. And so the networking, again, made it possible for people to do interesting things. And the networking fairly quickly converged on uh, Unix. It was just the easiest way to do networking as well. And then I guess... Is this because Bell was like just very permissive in terms of like licensing it out to these universities and stuff? In a weird way, yes. Part of the deal with uh, AT&T being this regulated public monopoly was that they weren't allowed to make money off stuff that wasn't their fundamental telephone business oh. because that would be cross-subsidizing and that would be bad. So, so what they did, and I don't know where this was conscious or just kind of nobody was awake, what they did was to license Unix for academic use for practically free. It was just kind of a nuisance fee. And they licensed it for in, uh, commercial use for not too expensive, $20,000, $30,000 kind of thing, because they couldn't sell it at a profit. So they had to basically just kind of say, okay, here it is, nuisance fee, media fee, something like that. Mm. And the, the license for universities was in and, and commercial was uh, very permissive. You got the source code. Yeah. So you could do anything you want with it. The only thing you couldn't do was, of course, distribute that code to anybody else unless they were a Unix licensee. And so if I had a Unix license and you had one, I could show you all the stuff I did and vice versa. And so we would have, you know, in effect, swap meets that very quickly became using Unix user groups. And so the community spread like that very quickly. And I think AT&T didn't even know kind of what to make of this. And they tried sporadically to make money from this with not a huge amount of success, although some. Um, and, but the licensing was also, I don't know what the right word is, but, but there were issues. And, and what happened, particularly at Berkeley, is that they decided they would start rewriting the AT&T code. So it wasn't AT&T code anymore. Mm -hmm. And that way they would be able to distribute it uh, on their terms, which was fundamentally academic free. Here you are. And there were certainly legal fights that went on into the early nineties about, you know, what, it, what are the properties of code that was rewritten at Berkeley 
And does it violate AT&T's intellectual property rights and license terms and all the rest of this stuff? And it was probably helped along by things like Linux. I mean, it was 1991 that Torvalds created his version of Lookalike, and that was based in metaphorically, not literally, I think, on Minix, which Andy Tannenbaum had done at the Free University in Amsterdam. And it's obviously at this point when you say Unix, and for many, many things, it actually is Linux. I feel like there could be a whole episode or, or many episodes about the spread of Unix and the eventual rise of Linux. Super interesting topic. Another thing that came up when talking to Brian was communicating and writing. In this clip from our first interview, I asked Brian if writing and documenting and communicating ideas was part of the reason why he had such a large impact. Yeah, I think that's actually um, highly relevant in some sense. I mean, I, as a programmer, I'm at best average, I think, uh, certainly not in even remotely in the same league as somebody like Ken or lots of others who I've known. But I probably write better than, you know, above average in that. And so, in a sense, that's an ecological niche for me that I can uh, do something. And uh, again, I've, it's an example of, gee, I find this thing and it's not very well explained or there's no explanation of it at all. Or how the heck do you do this? And so, let me try to figure it out well enough that I understand it myself and then in some way write that down so that other people can understand it better as well. Sort of an impedance matcher between the people who wrote the stuff and it's, they're not interested in describing it very much and the people who have to use it or want to be able to use it more effectively. And so, I think writing in that sense has for me personally been a, a good thing uh, and a chance to do something where I can compete in a way that I couldn't compete if it was just writing raw code or something like that. The other thing, and I think this is one of the things that probably Hamming said as well, um, when you do stuff, it's important to be able to talk about it to people who are not experts in your field. Can you explain what it is you're doing or what's going on in your field or what's important or all these kinds of things? Can you explain that to people who are not specialists in it in a way that they get the essence of the idea um, and as a result, are better educated or informed or whatever. And so I think that's a useful thing. And I think everybody should be able to do that. <clears throat> you know, even if you're you know, a programmer deep in the internals of something or other, you should be able to explain to someone else what it is you're doing, where it fits in, why it's important. And it's helpful to be able to both write that way and also talk that way, you know, be able to stand up in front of an audience literally or metaphorically, and explain it as well. And I think that's another example of a place where if you do more of it, you get better at it, perhaps. So there's a compounding effect. Writing and communicating is important. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot since talking to Brian. I mean, he was impactful both as a developer and as a writer. And I'm not sure how you could measure one against the other. But a lot of people I looked up to over the years, they were actually people I just knew primarily through their writing or through their speaking. If the guests on this podcast had never written things or given conference talks, I would have never knew they existed. So I would encourage you in the coming year to, to do some communicating, to do some writing about, about technology. I mean, don't feel obligated to, but if you have written something or created a YouTube video or whatever, share it on Twitter, uh, join our Slack channel and, and share it there. Maybe we can help spread the word. And also, I just love to see what you're making. Sean Allen was my guest for episode 55, and an interesting discussion we had that didn't get included in the interview concerned security around open source projects. If you haven't heard of the left pad incident, that's when a 10-line JavaScript library that padded numbers was removed from NPM, 
and major projects like React stopped working until it was addressed. There's been a number of incidents like that, uh, some involving Bitcoin miners as well. Sean has this interesting idea for using type systems to address this problem. Here's the clip. Almost every programmer is probably pretty awful on the security front right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with open source supply chain attacks, right? Like the JavaScript thing that I brought up earlier. There was a Ruby. Oh, yeah. There was, a, there was a, some Ruby one. Like, like the number one thing that, that seems to get noticed is people trying to steal stuff from people's Bitcoin wallets or whatever. But if you, if you, if you have a programming language where uh, you have ambient authority, which is that basically that anything within the program is completely yeah. trusted and can do anything it wants to. But if you take like ambient authority and you combine it together with a module package system where you're trusting stuff that comes down off the internet, right? Like this yeah. is this is a security nightmare. Like I don't think it's possible with how the JavaScript community works to write a secure application based on how that mo- that system works. Any one of those modules that you pull down can do absolutely anything it wants to, right? And they have so many modules, so many dependencies that get pulled in. It's completely impossible to actually like reasonably vet them as a human being to know that it's not going to be doing something nasty to you. Right. And so you go to you and then like, oh, hey, here's a security update for module foo. Right. It's going to, it's potentially going to pull in 30 other things for changes. And another thing, and you have hundreds of things that come in. There's no way that you can really bet that other than somebody told me that there's a security error and I need to bump this number, you know, in my lock file and then and then ha- pull everything down and get 50,000 other things. This is this is not like my going like oh no, JavaScript bad, you know. It's using it's using a model that like for the most part, at least for how old I am, I would equate back to like Perl and CPAN, right? Uh, Ruby gems is the same basic thing. NPM is the same basic thing. They're all the same model. And the programming language like, is like still built for like trusting mm-hmm. d- effectively, like you're granting complete trust to this code. Right. Yeah. And you can't go back and retrofit this onto JavaScript, but like what could solve it? Certainly you need, you probably need a type system of some type that will allow you to represent within the type system what activities a something is allowed to do what it's not allowed to do right yeah like in in object capabilities languages like where pony has that there was e that mark miller did is you provide a unforgeable token is the idea right so that like here's a token that allows you to listen on a tcp socket right Mm -hmm. and uh, any module that you do cannot open a TCP socket without having this, like, this authorization. This is this is this is how object capability solves it. The issue that, that comes from that then is people come in and they're used to working in languages that give them uh, ambient authority, right? And yeah. and what this what this leads to then in general is you have a token at the top level of your program. Like the top level of your program usually has ambient authority. It can do anything. And then it can turn that, it can segment off bits so that it's like, oh, okay, I can create a, the ability to open a TCP socket because I have ambient authority. And I'm only going to give you the ability to do open a TCP socket. And then you can hand that off to anything else as well, right? You're able to do that. But this means that, for example, at the call site, I have to explicitly pass this thing along. Yeah. 
And now if I want to allow you to do other things in the future, this is, you know, this is dependency injection, not, dependency in, like, injection. not, yeah. not in the spring way, but the actual dependency injection of you pass your dependencies in. There is no global thing that you can go off to to talk to the database or whatever. And people really dislike this from a developer like experience standpoint because it's not what they're used to. And they want to just be able to go, no, I want to be able to do that, right? Like, what do you yeah. mean I have to pass in the ability to print the standard out? Yeah. You know, well, yes, you have to pass in the ability to print the standard out. There's no way to do it otherwise. Like, and this is great for security, but it's bad for, you know, ergonomics. And I think if you look at any language like JavaScript or Go, which has ambient authority, I think that you can say on some level, the security of at least a certain kind. Yeah. Or in terms of supply chain or whatever, is definitely lower than a lot of other things in their values. And and that's not to say that that's that's bad or wrong, but it's a choice that they make. I I personally I love open source software for whatever that means um, and everything. I'm just deathly worried about like the ecosystem that we these ecosystems we're building up that they're so vibrant we can't trust them at all. It's an interesting observation, right? Why do I have to give a function call in a library I pulled from the internet, full authority to do everything that I can do in my code? Stated that way, it does seem like an area that needs improvement. A question that comes up in the Slack channel from time to time concerns doing computer science research or doing graduate degrees. I suppose that shouldn't be surprising, considering that we sometimes drift into more academic computer science topics. In episode 52, I interviewed Crystal Mon, who's a PhD candidate. I was going to ask you about grad school. Like, who should consider going? I think if you're one of those persons who is looking for mentorship in a real way, and you found that maybe software engineering, you just can't find that. Like, you're just kind of, you're doing the thing and you feel like, yeah, I'm, I can create a database. I can do this. But, like, I, I need to know this. But nobody, everybody's just telling me that it doesn't matter. You know, like, <laughs> a, a lot of software is just very, like, Oh, just get it done. And I really struggle with this because I want to understand a lot of things bit by bit. So if you're one of those persons who needs to kind of take things apart and really understand them, I think you'd be a really good fit. I also think that if you're a bit of a troublemaker, you'd be a really good <laughs> fit for grad school. William Byrd, he's a professor at the University of Alabama. But he told me that, you know, people who are kind of the troublemakers in undergrad and people say, oh, you know, like, he, they need to get their act together. He said something happens in grad school and those people shine oh. because they're the people who they have to know like why, but why, you know, they kind of question things. So if you're one of those persons, grad school might also be a really good fit. And if you're one of those persons who's fearless about failing, especially, I would say that you'd probably be a good fit for grad school because you have to be okay with, with just failing and being okay with the fact that through failing and being being kind of broken down in that process of failing and being built back up, you become a better person from it. Grad school is also a really great place for you to say, you know what, I'm going to find a professor in the music department and write a paper with them or like collaborate with people from all different departments. Like I'm doing a research with somebody in the econ department of my school. I met them in a machine learning class. So we're building a machine learning model that's related to an economics concept. Like, I absolutely love that I can do that because it's also made me better 
in terms of understanding that problems are not just computer science problems. They're tied to other things. Like one of the examples is bias. Bias is not just, oh, it's just data and it's a model and whatever. It's often tied to other socioeconomic concepts or issues in the larger world. And there's also balancing that with the public's or human beings' skepticism about technology. And you see this in all areas of AI right now, like the autonomous cars and um, issues of algorithmic bias. What's algorithmic bias? Ooh, oh, okay, cool. Yes. <laughs> so al- <laughs> algorithmic bias is, is, is the kind of a concept where the, what we think, we think of an algorithm as fair. And we think that it's just, there's no bias in it. And there was a lady, she's at MIT Media Lab, I believe, who found that when she was doing research, she was doing robotics research, that the robot would not see her face because she's black. Mm. And like I've, I've experienced this too, where I would go up to a sensor in a restroom, the towel dispenser, and it uh. just it won't see my hand because it just was not trained on data that looked like mine. Uh, and so there's a huge issue right now where a lot of these machine learning models are just producing horrible, <laughs> unintended results. Another example is, I think, believe it was Amazon that found that their hiring algorithm, their ha- hiring AI, it was unintentionally rejecting females. So if you had anything in your resume that was like women's chess or women in STEM, it would reject you because it the algorithm had figured or predicted that you would make a worse hire if you were female uh, based on their data. The two issues are different, but the same. Like if your machine learning is like trying to build a function that estimates somebody and and they have some sort of bias, then you're just going to reproduce that, right? That's true. Yeah. And I think historically too, there's just not, if you have a limited data set or a sparse data set and you're training based on so you're already starting with a skewed or unbalanced uh, data set, then of course your your model is going to have some degree of bias. And so that's pretty terrible if you're going to use those kind of systems to do things like predict whether people are criminals or whether you should let them um, drive a car or not. Yeah. Do you think that like there needs to be more diversity in the kind of AI field? Or is is the issue more related to data than the people? I think it's both. I think that perspectives are important, especially in research. And I'm actually this morning, I was involved in a group that does that is doing long term research to this capacity. It's a group based on doing machine learning for social good. And my particular group is focused on education. So here's a good example. I feel like there's so many, so many, especially in the Haskell community, programmers who would make amazing researchers. But research is, it's, I think it's a bit unfortunate and my advisors, they're aware of this. It's, you sort of at a huge disadvantage if you just didn't happen to go to a school with a strong research program. You're pipelining these people who already go to strong research schools who get into the best schools or they get into any PhD program at all. Then you're limiting the pool of people who could be researchers. So this is a good example too. One of the first hackerspaces I ever went to, and this is not a makerspace, it's a hackerspace. It was a grungy hackerspace and I love it to death, but they just didn't have a female restroom because, mm-hmm. and their female restroom had chemicals in it. 
They were just putting a bunch of chemicals because it was just dudes. And I mean, I love them to death and I spent years there, but there was a elderly woman and her son who would show up. Mm-hmm. The first time she said, where do I use the restroom? There's no female restroom. Was the first time that I saw the group of them just scramble to try to, to um, accommodate her. You know, and I just thought, well, this is interesting. You know, maybe if they um, had thought about this, then... It, it, you know, things, so many things would be different. I think one of the first conferences, oh, it's PLDI. I went to PLDI, PLDI one year, which is Programming Lounge's Design and Implementation as a volunteer. And I remember one of the other volunteers next to me, she was in PhD school already. And she was shaking her head because she said that I think it was one or three out of 300 people who were speakers at the conference were women. Mm. And it's like, you can't tell me that they couldn't find, you know, it just, it just, I mean, I'm, I'm not like overly political about that kind of stuff, but it's just, it's a little bit scary, you know, because it can go down a really bad road if you're just not considering other points of view. So yeah, if you're one of those people, then yeah, come to grad school. (laughs) (laughs) So who, who shouldn't go into grad school? I have personal opinions on, on that. I think people who are, first of all, if you just want to make a lot of money, there's no guarantee that when you come out of grad school, you, you certainly won't make up for the, for the time in terms of money that you missed. Another person I would say is the, like the R, I am very smart type person. <laughs> <laughs> if, because you just, you feel so stupid. Like every, every single day, you just, you're starting from ground zero and just building your, yourself up, building your work up. And then when you get to the point where, where you finally understand something, you move on to different projects and then you're like, oh, great. I get to feel stupid again. <laughs> um, <laughs> so a lot of it is, has been like that for me, especially working in a interdisciplinary team. Mm-hmm. You, depending on the project, you have people with different strengths. And I spoke to, so I spoke, before I went to, to grad school too, I went to Google IO, which is like Google's big conference and Jeff Dean was there. And so people are asking, you know, different questions. And, and I asked <laughs> him if he had any advice and he said, and I asked him specifically about finding mentorship outside of grad school. And he said that if you surround yourself with people who know more than you or people who are from different fields, that you always be learning. And I really like that. I, I like the fact that I feel like you should struggle intellectually because that's how you, you grow as a person. And I think, especially in software engineering, it can be easy to get very comfortable just being like, oh, I'm the, the whatever person. And I know this library really well. I know this stack really well. And that's, you, could, you can legitimately, unless, until you get laid off, you could get very comfortable just doing the same stuff for like 10 years. Mm-hmm. of software engineering and for grad school certainly you just do not do that it's just you're just being you're just struggling all the time and then just getting afloat and then publishing and then struggling again and then just getting afloat and then so you're doing that over and over until you become comfortable with that whole idea of struggling and gaining the information and figuring things out. So if you're one of those persons who finds comfort in just always being the smartest person and being um, super proud of that and condescending and smug, then uh, not to say that there aren't those people in grad school, because there are, but, uh, <laughs> but if you're one of those persons, it's probably not going to go as well as you think it is. 
I think the the last person is the check checking box person. Like if you're one of those persons uh-huh. who checks boxes, grad school can take longer than you think. So you know you might think that oh I'm just going to get my PhD and leave. And I have a cousin who's I think she's been for doing her PhD for like ten years now. <laughs> so you just ne- you never know how it's going to go. You know, or you might just end up not making it all the way through. Say fifty percent of people drop out. So um. You kind of have to be flexible in that way of just, I'm here for the journey and whatever, however it works out, it works out. I'm going to give it my best shot. And if you're not one of those people, then it's it's going to be rough. If you're thinking about going to grad school, I recommend just talking directly to Crystal. You can find her on the Slack channel for the podcast. If you go to corecursive.com, there is a link for Slack. Or you can hit her up on Twitter or, or email her. She has lots of helpful advice. So that was the episode. Uh, that was also 2020. I'd like to thank my feedback advisors, Jeremy Young, John Walker, Bob Tario, Brandon Brown, and Robert Mason. If the episodes this year have gotten any better, then a lot of the credit goes to them. And if they've gotten worse, then uh, that's my fault. Also, thanks to Courtney, my wife, who puts up with me spending far too much time on podcasting. And to end, here is some Jim Blandy archival footage. Ben Colin Sussman dug this up. I guess the pronunciation of GIF versus GIF made people nervous that subversion would be pronounced in a strange way. So they decided to make a audio file of the canonical pronunciation. And I'm going to end with that. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Hi, I'm Jim Blandy, and I pronounce subversion, subversion. And I don't know whether it has a capital V or not, but I've never written it that way. And I don't believe in forcing one person's interpretation of the world over another. I believe that everybody should have a chance to define their own reality. No, but- you don't. <laughs> But I pronounce subversion, subversion. Hi, I'm Jim Blandy, and I don't believe in the supremacy of Western culture over other cultures, but I pronounce subversion, subversion. Hi, I'm Jim Blandy, and I know we're all cultural relativists here, but I pronounce subversion, subversion. Hi, I'm Jim Blandy, and one of the things I like about free software is that anybody can do whatever they damn well please, but I pronounce subversion, subversion. Okay, one last one, and then we'll shut it off. Hi, I'm Jim Blandy, and I don't really understand why anybody should care how I pronounce it, but I pronounce subversion, subversion. Those in the know will have a